The big question that every writer has is, how can I sell more books? Or if they're not published yet, it's how can I write books that sell? But when writers approach selling books from a numbers perspective, they're missing out on the amazing relationships they could be building with readers through their stories. It's impossible to write books that resonate with readers when you're writing for money, because money can't read. But shouldn't writers be able to make a living with their stories? Well, when you connect with human souls, readers turn into fans and friends, and that's when consistent income begins. That and so much more. But how do writers connect with readers? That is the question this podcast aims to answer. My name is Kristen Spencer, and this is the Expensive Words Podcast. Before we get to the part where I explained what I'm going to do on today's episode, I want to acknowledge that this is the 35th episode of Expensive Words, and I want to thank you for going on this journey with me, for <laughs> surviving uh, those awkward first few episodes, or maybe, let's be honest, first 20 episodes. <laughs> and I also want to say that today I am officially halfway through my 70-day podcast challenge. Uh, I kind of fell behind last week, and if you notice, like, two or three episodes being released today, I was trying to catch up. I am officially caught up, and now I'm hoping to have a much uh, smoother experience in the second half of this challenge than I have in the first half. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, my family and I have a family night where we either play games, watch a movie, uh, or watch a television show, you know, listen to music. We, we like doing things together at least once a week where we can all just hang out for several hours, get uh, caught up with what's going on, in each other's lives. It's Sunday at my house, which means that there are kids running around in the background, apparently yelling and doing things. <laughs> but anyway, this week, we watched one of my personal favorites, and my husband saw that it was on Netflix, and he's like, why don't we watch this all together? And I was like, yes! So we watched the film Stranger Than Fiction, and if you haven't watched it, it came out in 2006, so you're past the spoiler warning, but I still want to give you the spoiler warning. I'm going to talk about a lot of the things that happen in that story. If you want to be surprised and watch it on your own, just pause this podcast right now, go watch it on Netflix, and then come back, and we can talk about it together. So uh, assuming that you've already seen it, I'm going to go forward and talk about why Stranger Than Fiction is a remarkable piece of writing and filmmaking, and I'm also going to talk about the ideas in it and how they apply to us, the expensive word writers, okay? So, Stranger Than Fiction is a film that came out in 2006, and this was basically right before my entire life changed. Uh, I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, and I remember going to see this in the theater with uh, another, with two other friends. It was like a couple double date, and our friends got up and walked out of the movie theater uh, because they didn't like how much Dustin Hoffman was cussing. And I think he says like two F words in the whole movie, 
Uh, I don't think that's enough to stop you from watching this. But so that was that was my first experience with the film. And I remember thinking, how could they walk out? This is so great. And then after they left, it got even better. So I would say, uh, you know, sometimes we need to be willing to let art confound us and upset us and confuse us uh, in order to get through to all the good parts. And they never watch the end of this movie. And uh, we live far away, and actually they're not married anymore. So we don't go on any more couple double dates with them. And I'm sad. I'm sad about their situation. But so that's like my vivid memory of going. And then that was like the first time I had gone to see a movie with someone, and they got up and left before the movie was over. That was weird. Uh, So anyways, this movie has a really amazing cast it's got Will Ferrell, and he plays the protagonist, Harold Crick. And then his love interest is played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and she's playing Anna Pascal, who's a baker, who's just adorable, and I love her so much. And then we have Emma Thompson play this kind of disgusting woman uh, who's an author, Karen Eiffel, and I'm going to talk about her and why she's so hard <laughs> to watch. Uh, and then uh, Queen Latifah plays the author's assistant, Penny Escher, and I really feel like there's not one bad movie with Queen Latifah in it. And then Dustin Hoffman plays the literature professor, Jules Hilbert, which is so much fun. If you know anything about literature, uh, you're going to love the, the quizzes and the things that he develops inside this story. And it was written by Zach Helm and directed by Mark Forster. And do you see, I'm getting better at this because remember when I would be like, hey, let's talk about this movie. And then I wouldn't know any of the names of anyone involved. <laughs> so I'm learning to do my research. And like I said, if you want to watch this movie right now on October 1st, uh, 1st on October 4th, 2020, Netflix is has Stranger Than Fiction available. So the premise of this film is that there's this character, Harold Crick, and he finds out that he his life is not just like his own. He's actually a character in an author's story. And he can hear her narrating whenever she's typing up the words of the story on her typewriter. And at first, he thinks he's going crazy. He goes to a, see a psychiatrist. And she's like, you have schizophrenia. And he's like, uh, not to be disrespectful, but no, I don't have schizophrenia. And she's like well, what you're describing is schizophrenia. And he's like, well, okay, let's say let's say that it's not schizophrenia. And she's like, it is. And he's like, okay, but let's just say it's not schizophrenia. What would you do? And she's like, well, if you're a character in a book, maybe you should go talk to a professor in literature. And the thing that is very uh, endearing about Harold Crick, who is played by Will Ferrell, is that he is trying to figure this out and his life is very interesting. <laughs> I, I just can't. I love this story so much. So he's uh, he's an auditor for the IRS, which is just hilarious on its own. But he has this obsessive compulsive need to count. And at some point, he refers to being good at math as like a superpower. And you can tell that that's what he thinks about himself, that the only good thing about him is that he can do math. And he... Uh, at some point hears the narrator who is voiced and played by Emma Thompson who's author Karen Eiffel say that he doesn't know about his imminent death and he's like wait what and he starts like 
He's all, what What do you mean imminent death? He starts talking back to the voice and people around him think that he's gone crazy. Uh, but he goes and finds this professor, uh, Professor Jules Hilbert, who's played, again, by Dustin Hoffman. And the professor starts putting together all these different quizzes so he can kind of figure out what type of story that Harold Crick is in. And Harold Crick starts carrying around this notebook. And on one side, it says comedy. And on the other side, it says tragedy. And he puts a tick each time something funny happens or each time something tragic happens. And he's investigating this woman who owns a bakery uh, who's played by Maggie, G- Maggie Gyllenhaal. The name of the character is Anna Pascal. And she is getting audited because she has decisively not paid a portion of her taxes that she didn't feel that she agreed with paying, which went to national defense. And so Harold Crick comes in, and he has, like, a physical attraction to this character, and he inappropriately observes her body. He objectifies her, and she gets mad (laughs) because, of course, she's mad. No one likes to be objectified. And later on in the story, he sees her in the bus, and he's like, you know, I just want to apologize. I, I ogled you. And she's like apology accepted you know and it's this really cute moment and there this movie is very character centric in that nothing happens without the characters and even the character of uh, Emma Thompson's character she's playing the author Karen Eiffel is sort of disgusting and hard to watch and I was talking to my husband Travis about this uh, earlier we were driving to the grocery store I'm like You know, I want to say I don't like it when writers are depicted that way, that they have all these weird quirks and that maybe they don't always groom themselves properly, also that they don't have a proper support system. And I was like, but I know that some writers are that way, so I can't be mad. Um, But you watch her, her character, the one who's creating the whole story, also has a character arc within the story. It's very clever writing. And... At the end, we see that she also has changed. She has all these disgusting habits, which, like, ah, they make me cringe. Uh, At one point, she goes into the hospital to try to get inspired about how to kill her character, Harold Crick, who she doesn't know is real yet. And she's, like, asking the nurse, where are the, like, these people are severely injured, but where are the people who are actually dying? I really need to see those people. And the nurse is like what is wrong with you? Are you, Do you have, like, some kind of condition? And you see, like, the character of the assistant who's played by Queen Latifah, Penny, which I love the name Penny. Uh, she is, like, cringing, and she's trying, like, not to be associated with her. And <laughs> But she's there to support her. She's been sent in by the publishing house to get um, Karen Eiffel to finish this novel that she's supposedly been working on for 10 years at this point. We know she hasn't published anything in 10 years. But the twist comes when Harold Crick uses his IRS uh, abilities to get the contact of Karen Eiffel, the author, which is not allowed, but he does it anyway, which shows that his character is changing because he never would have done something like that at the beginning of the story. And he calls her, and she's like, writing the thing like uh the phone rang and then her phone rings the phone rang again the her phone rings the one that she's told penny at the beginning of the story never rings and penny's like i thought you said that never rings and then she writes the phone rang for a third time and the phone rings and she races over to the corner of the apartment she picks it up and she's talking to harold crick a real blood and flesh harold crick 
who she invites to come over. And this is after she's actually uh, written on a yellow ledger, a yellow pad, right? The end of the story, which she's just figured out. And (laughs) he comes in and you can see her. She knows him and she's like in shock. This is really good acting, by the way, by everyone. Uh, And Emma Thompson plays Karen Eiffel amazingly. And you can see the look on her face like, this is someone I know because when you're a writer, you know exactly how your characters look in your head. And you write down all these characteristics about them. You know them intimately. You know them as if they were a real person who you had invested uh, years of building a relationship with. And so he comes in and now she's faced with this dilemma of if I kill him, a real person dies. And it's, oh gosh, it's so it's so good and watching it with my kids uh you know I was crying a bunch because I cry whenever a really good story is happening and my son kept poking at my cheek you know like smearing my tears around because he's all mom you're crying I'm like I know but I always cry when there's a good story right and there's this scene where uh Harold Crick has gone to Anna Pascal and he's going to tell her that he wants her. And that's all he can think of to tell her. He admits this later. But he brings her a bouquet of flowers. F-L-O-U-R-S. Instead of a bouquet of traditional flowers. Because Anna Pascal is a baker. And I have seen a lot of movies. I have read a lot of books since 2006. 14 years ago. And I still always think of this as one of the ultimate moments of a character doing such an appropriate and an unbelievably uh, intimate romantic gesture because he's giving her a box with 12 different kinds of flour in it because she's a baker. And she's like, well, do you have some kind of, uh, you know, key to it? He's all, oh, no, I just memorized it. And she's all, well, what's the orange one? Or maybe what's the blue one? And he says, like, uh, barley flour. And then she's all, well, what's this one? He goes, I forgot. And it's just, (laughs) it's such a cute moment. It's one of my favorite romantic moments of any romantic comedy slash tragedy ever And you see that he's growing as a person, but the fact that she's confronted with her character being a real person changes Karen Eiffel's character as well to the point where when she finally goes to meet Professor Jules Hilbert, who is played by Dustin Hoffman, she actually looks like a clean, healthy human being because the entire time she's wearing these dirty clothes, her hair's dirty. I mean, they did such... I mean, oh, she has like these giant red rings around her eyes the entire time. You know, uh, Emma Thompson is a beautiful woman and they did such a good job of making her look awful like to the point where you're like, I don't even know if I want to look at her. And she does this thing where she like spits into a tissue paper and then she puts her cigarette out. It's just gross on purpose, which good for them. (laughs) Um, But so she changes too as the story goes and she's confronted with this idea of if I kill this character, this person will really die. And so uh, Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick, goes to Dustin Hoffman's character, Professor Jules Hilbert, and he gives him the story, and he's like, well, is there anything I can do? And he, and Dustin Hoffman's character, the professor of literature, is like, I'm sorry, no. 
if you don't die, this book doesn't make sense. And this is one of the, this is going to be like a preeminent work of literature in our time. And there's no way around it because if you don't die, then it's not meaningful. And Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick, goes and reads the entire book while sitting on a bus, which is a really nice montage. And my kids were like, would they let you stay on the bus when they're watching it? We're like, no, they wouldn't. But, you know, suspension of disbelief, which we've talked about in another episode. They're like, okay. And I was like, but this is a nice shot, right? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, so that's why. Just, you know, just suspend your disbelief. I didn't tell them that, but that's what I was thinking, like, are you willing to go along on this ride? Are you willing to suspend this idea? And it it's he decides, Harold Crick, as a character, decides, I'm going to die. I'm okay with dying if that means that this story gets to be what it should be. And, uh, yeah, this is a spoiler. Like I said, I was going to talk about the whole movie. And in the end, Karen Eiffel's character she says to Professor Jules Hilbert, this story was about a man who didn't know he was going to die dying. But in this case, he knows he's going to die and he chooses to die. And isn't that someone that we want to save? And I'm just like, yes, cheering, crying, you know, all the things. And uh, I was thinking about it. I was talking about it with my husband, you know, like I said, when we were going to the grocery store. And he's like, it's a really good story about determinism. And uh, even though my husband is a house painter and he's learning to be a um, home inspector, he's gone to Bible college. He's basically acted as a pastor for the last, you know, since 2006, (laughs) since... He's done this in our lives for a long time where he's been in full-time ministry and he's been caring for people spiritually. And so he understands all these theological concepts. And he was talking, he's like, yeah, this is a really good example of determinism because we've been talking about uh, Calvinism and Reformed theology. And if you don't know what any of that means, that's fine. I'm going to tell you really quick what determinism now is what it is right now. And it's the idea that uh, all events, including human actions, are determined from an outside source. And that is part of Reformed theology where they believe that uh, if you believe in God, that's because he chose you to believe in him and you had no other choice. And uh, I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, okay? And there are a lot of good tenets of Calvinism that I agree with personally, but I do not believe in determinism, which is that if God chose you, you have no choice. I can hear one of my dogs throwing a bone in the, (laughs) throwing a boat around in the mudroom. So if you hear that, I'm sorry. Uh, And so this story is, if you have a, you know, whether or not Harold Crick has a choice, whether or not Karen Eiffel, the author, has a choice. And in the end, she chooses for the sake of how good Harold Crick is not to kill him and uh, not to have that amazing work of literature that would have made her basically immortal is what Professor Jules Hilbert says, that no matter who dies, when they die, that good literature lives forever. And that's, I do think that that is true, and that's one of the reasons why people want to become famous authors is so that they can be immortal in a sense. But... She chooses 
mortality in an effort to save someone who she believes is special, Harold Crick. And uh, the nod to the... So the wristwatch is a character in the story, Harold's wristwatch. And at the end of the story, it is the thing that saves him, and he has a piece of it embedded in his arm forever. And it's really a clever piece of writing. If you were going to read this book, I would say, you know, this fictional book that this movie is based around, it would be amazing. All the parts of it that we get to hear are awesome, and it's well-written, and it just does a good job of showing how important character is to a story. Without characters, there is no story in Stranger Than Fiction, and I really have to commend Zach Helm for writing this amazing screenplay and also the director, Mark Forster, who was able to capture everything Uh, including there's like graphics throughout the film that pop up and show numbers because Harold Crick is obsessed with numbers, right? It's just very clever. It's one of those movies that when I feel sad, when I feel like I can't keep going as a writer, I go watch it because it makes me feel inspired. It makes me remember why I'm endeavoring to do something so hard, which is to write a novel to create a story filled with expensive words uh, that are difficult for me to write emotionally so that I can connect with the reader. And at one point, I stopped my kids from watching, and I was like, okay, let's play a game. Everybody tell me why you like Harold Crick. And uh, my son said, he's interesting. He's not like everybody else. And my daughter said, he's funny. And even though he wasn't trying to be funny, he did have these really funny moments, which is opposite with Will Ferrell. We always expect him to be funny all the time. And you can see his restraint and his acting chops in this character because Harold Crick is only occasionally funny. But when he is funny, he he just wins you over. And then my oldest daughter was like, "He's I like him because he's boring. And I was like, oh, What you mean, I think, is that he's a relatable character. And she's all, yes, that's it. He's like us. And I was like, see, (laughs) I was thinking about you because I was thinking about all the things we've been talking about in the last few episodes about writing realistic characters and writing realistic children characters and how we talked about how characters must be relatable. And that is why this movie is magic because Harold Crick is, quote, boring because he's a relatable character because he has a lonely existence and he has dreams. And at some point, the literature professor, Jules Hilbert, tells him, well, you know what, Harold, if you're a character in this story, why don't you go make it a story worth telling? Why don't you go live the life you've always wanted to live? And that is the uh, impetus for the character arc shift for Harold Crick, and we see that he starts to become involved with other people's lives. He starts to contribute to the joy of others and doing things that he likes. He learns how to play the guitar. Uh, The song he plays in the film, I went and learned that, and now I played on the guitar because I also play the guitar. I know I've talked about playing the piano and singing, um, but I'm actually probably best at playing the guitar, and I got really emotionally injured while I was playing the guitar during a certain season of my life. So I just don't play it as much as I should or as much as I would like to because it makes me very sad. And that's something I'm working through, and I'm sure that would wind up in a story at some point. But um, 
it's that's how much this movie impacted me to where I went and learned how to play this guitar, this song on the guitar and sing it, and I still know how to. Uh, and they're just all these little moments of relatable characterization that make you fall in love with the characters, and they are really the driving force in this whole story, which is clever. And if uh, in hearing my impassioned speech on all of the, I mean, not all of the, some of the amazing things in this story, you don't feel compelled to go watch it, then I, I would say I don't understand you <laughs> because it's so good. It's such a great example. And when I'm feeling uninspired or when I'm feeling tired, I can go watch it and get all my creative, uh, my creative juices refilled. I keep thinking about like when you're playing a RPG game and you like get the potion. This is the creative potion for me and I can always kind of fall back on it. And now that it's on Netflix, I'm sure I'll watch it uh, 20 to 30 more times before it goes off of there because I love it so much and I cry every time I see it and I laugh every time I see it. And it just does all the things that I aspire to do as a writer. And it's great. It's it's a timeless piece. This movie did not get enough attention when it came out. And I hope that it's one of those things that becomes a cult classic because there are so many amazing aspects to it. And I feel like the writer community should really embrace this film and embrace the hard work of Zach Helm and all the actors and Mark Forrester. So, go watch Stranger Than Fiction if you haven't already. And uh, remember that when you do stories around human choice and you give that ability to choose to the characters, you're fighting against determinism. And you, you know, you've heard me quote Hogarth from The Iron Giant a million times. You are who you choose to be. And this movie is an argument in that direction. And that's probably one of the other reasons why I am pretty obsessed with it. This has been Kristen on the Expensive Words podcast, pouring out my heart for you, my wonderful listener. If there's any question you want to ask me, if there's anything you want to tell me, you can go to expensivewords.com or you can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer. And I would love to hear your wonderful writing thoughts from your amazing writing brain. Happy writing.